Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Thank you very much for coming. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Edith Devaney. I'm a curator at the Royal Academy of Art, and I am, I'm, I'm head of summer exhibition. And this conversation with Thomas Hausego tonight is, is related to the summer exhibition program. And one of the things I've been asked to say just before we start is that at the end of the conversation, we'll be having a question and answer session, and microphones will be coming round. So just put your hand up, and I will, I will field all of the... Um, all of the questions. Um, so we're delighted to have Thomas with us. He is showing his work in, um, in the RA courtyard um, as part of this summer exhibition. And if you came in the front, it's absolutely impossible to miss. Um, already he's a star on the BBC, so he was covered in our summer exhibition um, uh, coverage on the BBC, uh, on BBC Two. And um, he follows a long line of, of very, um, distinguished contemporary sculpture, sculptors showing in the courtyard. So in recent years, we've shown work by Jeff Koons, by Anselm Kiefer, Ellen Atsui, decorated the front of the building, Anish Kapoor last year, most recently Cornelia Parker um, for her psychobarn work. And interestingly, Thomas is the very first artist that we've invited to take over the courtyard who isn't a, a royal academician, so it's a, it's a real distinction. Um, so just a little bit about Thomas. Um, born in Leeds, you came to London in the early 1990s, went to St. Martin's School of Art for your BA, and then went to Amsterdam for two years to study there at the D'Atelier, then Brussels, and then LA. So you've been in LA for the past 15 years. Um, but one of the exciting things for us about having you in the courtyard at this moment is that you're having a real moment in Europe. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you've got this very significant one-man show at, in, in Paris at the, um, at the, the Musée d'Art Moderne, which, which runs until the 14th of July, um, which is, is an extraordinary body of work. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the Paris show and what this kind of means for you at this point within your career. Yeah, I mean, um, um, it, it is. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about it because this trip, we've been back and forth to London and Paris. And I think um, the key with the Paris show is it's the first time, can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. It's the first time I've been able to look through my work and in a way through my life, I'm, a, I'm on a kind of safe enough ground to do that and, and to, to make sense of kind of where I've come from and where I'm going, you know, that famous thing and where I want to go. Um, and it's a kind of homecoming, but it's also um, a complex moment because I'm not really sure where is home totally anymore. I'm long enough in LA that uh, Europe is a kind of home and LA is a kind of home. So I'm, it's, it's an interesting um, moment to think about my identity and kind of, kind of place I fit in or don't. And I think Paris is the first time I've had the the touch of feeling like I, I fit somewhere in that show, weirdly enough, in Paris, in that yeah. audience. 
It's interesting because from your, your, your days in, in um, Amsterdam and then Brussels, you've always shown in mainland Europe, haven't you? So that, that's, yeah. you know, your work has been seen and continues to be seen there very regularly, much less so in the UK with the exception of um, the Modern Art Exhibition in Oxford in 2010. Right. But yes, Paris is just, I mean, that's such a kind of major yeah, and, 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 and I've never, um, you know, I'd, I'd never really thought that would be the place that would be um, from my first survey show. It, it, it's, it's strange to, to reflect on the, that city, but it also makes a lot of sense. My interest in sculpture was never um, really British. I never fit into the British school thing. So, I mean, I was at St. Martin's when Goldsmiths was happening. So I was always kind of off. Just you know, I was never in, like, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I think coming from, from Leeds when I did to London meant also I didn't quite feel, at that time I was much more insecure, I didn't feel totally like I understood London either. So, you know, I studied, a very important moment of studying for me was in Amsterdam and was like Marlena Dumas and Jan Dibitz and Rudy Fuchs and these people who had a very different um, view of what art could be made, what art can't, what's acceptable in a weird way. England was much more severe in the 90s. It was very, um, yeah, it was the YBA thing, you know, and, and that, that was, Quite limited, or at least it felt to me quite limited. Well, it was, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting notion, and I know that um, people, um, artists looking back now, say that you know the YBAs took so much oxygen from other other things going on at the time. There was loads right. of other things going on at the time, loads right. of other influences and, and tendencies. But there, there was that thing that they were, yeah, the and spotlight and, was on them. And it was the end of the 20th century in a weird way, and I think pretty much everywhere there was this feeling of the death of things. Death of painting, death of the author, um, people trying to make sense of the 20th century intellectually. And then I think England is, um, has these two very different sides to it. It has this deeply romantic, passionate, kind of William Blake side. And it has this very intellectual, very cold, very distant craft, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing, being mm -hmm. good at something. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and so I used art to make sense of the world. I was, it wasn't a practice. I remember in London art schools, everyone talks about their practice, which was like so foreign to me. I, and I used it to make sense of, um, the, of being in a body, of being in the world, of being in... in um, and so I, it didn't make sense to me, the discussions around... I remember those lectures at St. Martin's where it was like, I didn't get it. And I, and I still, I think I've maintained that complicated relationship to England. England is very, like, literal. Like, wh why have you done this? Kind of questions, you know. And, um, and I think that England does feel things very deeply and powerfully, but it's a complicated relationship. They have to feeling. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. It's, it's that complicated relationship with, with emotions, isn't it? Yes, and it's right. That, yeah. it, and with it's, the body. With the body, and that's part of the makeup. And it's, it's, so that, that um, persuaded you to go to Amsterdam. And did you immediately feel that sense of freedom? I mean, you had quite extraordinary teachers there. Well, yeah, in Amsterdam, I mean, it was economic too. I mean, Amsterdam was, at that time, it was a miraculous situation that they paid you to go. You had money, you had a studio. It was the Dutch miracle, you know. But it was, um, the people that taught there 
were extraordinary. And it was a hard time for me emotionally and psychologically. I, I really, I almost had too much freedom. And, and the work that was coming out of me was disturbing because I had that freedom to really look at myself and this stuff started pouring out. And so that first, those two years there were incredible and life-changing, but they were incredibly destabilizing too, mm-hmm. uh, um, just in terms of my mental well-being. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to make of that. It was almost like a dam burst and I couldn't put it back in. So it left me in this state. But it sounds um, as if it had to happen. It had it to happen. A... Yeah, it had to happen. And, and, um, and it, was, it was in many ways the best possible thing to go to Amsterdam. It was extraordinary. And just the people I met and the, and the way of watching these people be artists, how they saw being an artist, kind of um, provided me with a proper way of imagining myself in the world that I'd never had before. But, you know, in London, I met, I met amazing people too. Enrico David, who's still... I just saw him in Venice, he's representing Italy, and you know, it was, but it was, the Englishness of it was something I grappled with. So yeah, in Amsterdam there was like freedom, but there was almost too much yeah. on some yeah. level. And then Brussels was like, like really crazy. So it was, it was still a very, a very tense time for you, but, but some of the, the work that you produced in, in Brussels, which is kind of considered your, your sort of earliest mature work, yeah. that, that's in the Paris show, and it must be yeah. kind of... Inter- it's always interesting for an artist to be faced with their earliest work yes. and, and doing that kind of, you know, looking at that whole trajectory. But, you know, because that work came out of a particularly emotional time, was it, was it a difficult thing for you to confront again? Yeah, and, and, the, and you know, the show was interesting um, because in that line, um, there was a lot of kind of personal... There was death and, and, and a lot of emotional things actually going on in my current life as that show opened. So the show, in a way, was like this vortex. Mm. Um, but it was. Me, me and Mona were there yesterday um, to sort of say goodbye to it. And I found myself struggling to say goodbye to it. It was almost like I couldn't quite take it in and hold it and hold on to it. Because, yeah, the, the works were, some of the works were from 94, 95. Mm-hmm. Some works were from that Brussels time. Some from the very early LA phase, which was quite intense, quite mm-hmm. frightening mm-hmm. Um, also. And, and then work which I'm making now, which is also making sense of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in a much more self-aware position. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a weird moment. Yeah. It was, in many ways, the show was as much of a shock for me as, as for anything else. It was just a shock to see the things that linked yes. uh, over 20 years, 25 years. And then, you know, works I included uh, from when I was really young, like 18, 19, I was doing these weird performances to relook at that in a lineage um, that's taken me through so much so many different places and situations to see these consistent themes. And put it into a particular context. Yeah. And one of the, I mean, the, 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 the exhibition's absolutely beautiful, and, and, but one of the, the most... That was Amsterdam, 95. So, but one of the, um, one of the most, uh, what, biggest works in the, in the exhibition is um, L'Ompresse, which is the, yeah. um, which is a work that the um, director of the, the museum in Paris saw in Venice. And it was, yeah. it was it, th- this work was positioned outside the Palazzo Grassi in 2011, mm-hmm. was it, at the yeah. Biennale? And it was, it, everyone saw it. And it was mm-hmm. one of those kind of 
things that they've stayed in everyone's memory because mm -hmm. I remember at the time being there and people mm -hmm. talking about it and it was it was kind of looming out over over the canal <laughs> and I, I find it so interesting to learn that that was the starting point for him yeah for Fabrice, that show together yeah, yeah Fabrice came up to me very deliberately I, I didn't know who he was and I was drinking quite heavily at the time so it was a weird blur that night anyway and he was super clear like okay that Piece. There was something about that piece for him um, that kind of confirmed something or aligned something. And I think, um, you know, seeing it in Paris, I hadn't seen it since it was mm -hmm. up there in Venice on the canal and mm -hmm. all that, and it was very distant. And when, when I, as I experienced that in Venice, it was a very, um, it didn't feel like my piece at all. It felt like someone else had done it in it's a weird very way. High, very it? high, and yeah, I yeah, designed it yeah, to be very high. Yeah. And it was weird, and it was hard to see kind of deliberately. But seeing it now in um, in Paris close up and seeing how people react to it, um, and then looking at the final piece that me and Muna worked on for that last room, I started to really understand it anew now for myself. Uh -huh. But I think, um, I think, you know, people have a tough time with my work because it is hard to look at. It's hard to literally make sense of. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, it's, um, it's emotionally hard to kind of process it, meaning it's not just like, scary, but nor is it, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard, even for me. Like, I, I often don't really know how to look at it. I don't want to live with it. I don't like living with it. Um, but I think what was interesting in Venice was something that I can now see people are more comfortable with, that I was making a kind of monument, anti-monument. And I was making something um, that was deliberately trying to make visible mm -hmm. something that we feel mm -hmm. and that we, it's hard to make visible. You know, there is something monstrous in the air, right? Yes. That we can now see more and more and more. Yeah. And I was trying to make that vis visible. And I think some people in, in Venice got that. Because the Pinot thing often had these, like, triumphant, shiny, you know, Jeff Koons balloon dog that you can't not like. You know, we have to like those. Yeah, you know, they're, they're Jeff, it's yeah, like yeah. kicking a child in a yeah, weird way yeah. to not like <laughs> them. And, um, and that was the opposite of that. It was, it was weird, like, as you went round on the boat, kind of disappeared. It was, it was at a really brilliant angle. But it's interesting yeah. that, you know, I didn't find it th a threatening piece. I was mm -hmm. fascinated by it. And you just said that you, you the, the, the certain works that you've done that you don't, you don't feel comfortable living with, which kind of brings me back to, to the courtyard and how this display came, came about. Right. And um, mm -hmm. I, we were brought, I was brought by a mutual friend, Wakas, um, to, yeah. to your studio. And, yeah. and we were in L.A. and... and and Wakas said to me, have you really never been to Thomas's studio? And that's how we, we met. And mm -hmm. I, you know, as a, one of the, the, the wonderful privileges about being a curator or a director of museum is that you get to go and visit artists in their studios. Mm -hmm. And it's always a really enriching experience. But I was, I was really quite blown away when I visited your studio. And it was walking into that, that very, very big space you've got mm -hmm. and your arrangement of, of sculpture there. Right. That you were living with, I guess, and that you yes. had arranged in a particular way that just had such amazing energy that felt as if it was kind of trying to burst out of the confines of the studio space. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment I just thought, 
oh my goodness, wouldn't this be fantastic if we could do something in this vein at mm. the Royal Academy? And I, I, that's the start of the Well, it was, it was fortuitous, because I was kind of ready for you because of David, because I'd met David Hockney, me and Mona got to know David not that long before, and, and I'd, you know, kind of discovered this kind of family member I didn't know I have, and, we, and he'd spoken about you. And in a weird way, you know, David has a really strong understanding of why I'm uncomfortable with England, or I have this difficult relationship, but he also has this real investment in like, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I'm usually quite suspicious with uh, English visitors. I, I, I kind of act out a little bit normally. And with you, I didn't, because I was kind of ready. And, um, and you uh, got the idea, I mean, I don't, the studio I consider, I don't live in the studio. I go and work there. Yeah. But I do live with the work in a kind of um, dialogue. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's a show in a weird way. I mean, it's kind of a show I live in, and you saw that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't see that. They, they just kind of come in there and they're overwhelmed or underwhelmed or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But you really saw that there was a kind of method to that madness mm -hmm. of that room, which there is because I think ultimately sculpture is probably, for the most part, best seen in the studio of the artist. That's why the Brancusi studio works so beautifully in Paris, for example, or the new institute, the Giacometti Institute, this little museum in Paris now. Um, and it's not his studio, but they've kind of recreated enough of it that you feel, you know, sculpture is, it does burst at the, at the, at the edge, it tries to go out in the mm. world. Sculptors want to go out into the, the physical it's, world. It's interesting, because you mentioned Brancusi. I mean, is that notion of him you know, and I, I think about him photographing his work, which is, is a real indication as to how he wanted us to see it, how he yeah. wanted us to perceive it. And of course, David Smith did the same thing. I know we've got Claire right. Lilly here, so she can talk about that right. a little bit. But you know, David Smith loved to to to, um, to photograph his work in the environment, so, so that's how you were seeing it. But you you have got this different way of looking at it, which is very generous. You you don't expect. My, my impression is you don't expect anyone to look at it from any particular angle. Well, it's, it's, yeah. It, however you encounter it, it's okay. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think, I think there's this, um, you know, there's a deep thing in me that, that one day I want to buy a piece of land big enough to build a space and make a park where my work can be seen, you know, properly in my kind of maniacal way. Um, but I also understood pretty quickly that sculpture, and I think why they photograph their work and control it, mm -hmm. is sculpture doesn't fare well in the world because we don't really like it. In fact, we kind of hate sculpture as a society. And we don't make room or, 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 or really care about it in, in how, and it's such a specific art, it can be destroyed, as you know, by the wrong situation or the wrong placement. Or You can see Brancusi shows that look like like stores, you know, like jewelry stores is terrible. But um, I kind of got good with the idea that I had to live in that ambivalence for now, you know. And there are still times, like sometimes when I go and see my work somewhere and I, I want to die, I want to blow it up. You know, like the fountain head, like I want to... Um, and, and a lot of my work I, I grow to kind of hate anyway, but um, I've gotten good... I think largely because my work has, or certainly the early work, has a fight in it. It has already a fight with the world mm -hmm. in it. So when you put it in the world, that fight 
kind of um, survives okay. Mm -hmm. um, but it is painful. I mean, I think sculpture is painful because there's nowhere to put it. There's no place for it, really. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. 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 And, because and, galleries are made for paintings. Yeah, they, museums are largely made, yeah. made for paintings. And the social space now is dominated by architecture. Mm -hmm. And um, understandably so. But in a weird way, all sculptors, it's like weird when we meet each other. There's this kind of like, we're very world weary and slightly like jaded and hopeful. There's this weird mixture in sculptors. I finally figured it out meeting enough of them that you kind of know you're doomed. It's an art form that has doom in it and you kind of get good with it in a weird, in a weird way. And um, so that's inherent to the practice. And I do believe, I keep saying this and it sounds really dramatic, but I think as a practice it's kind of dying. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of like, you know, the queen is dead, long live the queen. It's, it, it will be reborn in some ways, but it's being, um, its space is being removed. And the people that look at sculpture and like sculpture, show sculpture, are very, weird group <laughs> it's not a big it's not a big popular thing you know it's a weird specialist deal and 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 you have to have that it doesn't make sense it, it can't make sense it's obvious so to still do it requires this weird leap of faith yeah. from everyone and that in of itself is quite wonderful but I mean, for me, you know, walking into the courtyard every day as I do coming here, it doesn't feel as if sculpture's dead when I see your work. I mean, it's just such a kind of affirmation of sculpture. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, it was, it's interestingly when you and Moon and I were talking about how to, what works to select and, and how to configure them. Um, you, you mentioned Joshua Reynolds and said, well, you know, we, we could relate it to that, but surely everyone's done it. And I said, no, you're the first, you know, the first people that Actually, it, it was, that. you know, it, it, I was in this state about doing it, because I'd mm -hmm. done Paris, and that was a huge risk, and I was very much like gladiatorial, you know, yeah. like survive yeah. or die, and that was intense. So the RA, like, as I came through Paris, I was like, oh, my God, you know, I've got to do this thing that I kind of underestimated to make it okay. Like, I'm, I'll do Paris and I'll do the RA theater. It's easy, it's a courtyard, blah, blah, blah. No, you know, no, like, doorways to get through. But actually, when it came upon me, I was like, fuck. And I understand why a lot of sculptors do some giant thing. Mm -hmm. Do you know, like, theatrical. Like, yeah, yeah. And it was actually Muna. I was obsessing about it. And I don't like Joshua Reynolds. I don't like the guy. I don't like his <laughs> stuff. I don't like his work. I have a real issue with it. And, um, and then I'd read this thing that William Blake had taken one of his treaties uh -huh. and written all these kind of like super dark responses in the margins. And I don't know if, if, I don't know if it's been published, but that fascinated me, you know, these two sides of England in a way, Joshua Reynolds, Akamadish, and William Blake, the freakazoid in mm. a weird way. And so uh, it was actually Muna's kind of like ninja move, almost like a... You know, what do you call it, Tai Chi? Yeah. She was kind of like, embrace it. Embrace it. Because I had all these ideas, let's put, a, let's put a sack on him. I had this kind of conceptual piece. Where I was going to put a black sack and have a fire. You know, I had all these kind of like Chris Burden meets James Lee Byers ideas. And then Mona You spared was, me for those, for yeah, those ideas. No, no, I didn't there were, hear there any were of this until later. I was like, just the bag. And... Um, 
And it was Mona who said, no, embrace it. Like, he's there, he's a monument, you do monuments. And, um, and in a weird way, that all kind of came together because you were also saying, hey, show what I've seen, like, show the studio. So in some ways, we kind of brought the studio, mm -hmm. the idea mm -hmm. of it, and then we also, at the same time, really openly embraced the idea of the monument, the idea of Joshua Reynolds being there, the idea of the academy. Yeah. Um, because you've treated it, I think one of the conversations we had earlier on, early on was to treat it like an outdoor gallery. Yeah. And to, to, to place the work in that particular way. And it does have that because you've got those, those six works and they've got this, this right. remarkable energy, all but one looking out at you as you, yeah. you come in under that arch. And it's yeah. a very affecting thing, isn't it? With the, with the big piece, the yeah, title I mean, work you know, you've got, you got to remember, we had this, we had our, our one dream was to have like 13 pieces in the courtyard. It was like, right, some, some huge amount. Like once the, the sort of like, the genie came mm -hmm. out, we, were, mm -hmm. we really wanted to fill the courtyard and, and practicality stepped in. But I think there's enough work to, like oh, yeah. you say, to yeah. feel it. And I think the final piece, the, the black piece, uh, when that came out of the crate that morning, um, the, suddenly looked like a coffin, you know, like it's like a giant coffin with this like figure coming in. And the last time that piece had been shown was in Leeds mm -hmm. for the like some bizarre thing, like the Tour de France was going through Leeds and of all people they asked me and then they, they made an opening, but then on the morning of the opening, horribly a kid murdered his teacher in front of the, in all the, front of all the kids. So that was this kind of, they like wanted to throw a blanket on that sculpture, you know what I mean? Um, and so it kind of came out of the crate and kind of came in. And I did have a moment, I have to say, where I felt slightly ashamed. Like, ooh, maybe I, that's too much. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, there is something about that group at that moment yeah. that, like, I didn't sleep for a couple of nights, you right. know. Um, what am I showing, you know? It's something like that. I felt like some... some spirit, demonic spirit had been released in some way. But then, you know, what's shocking is you're out there doing the install and then like an elderly couple from Croydon come up and start talking to you about it with unbelievable sophistication yes. and love. And one lady was like, this looks like, uh, this piece looks like after a nuclear war, you know? And I said, God, I'm really sorry. She said, no, it's great. It's a warning. And I was like, really? No, I love it. It's it, a it was a remarkable moment, yeah. actually, and I haven't known it before because I've done so many installations in, in that space. When, when the public, because you can't, you can't put a fence around it. We, we do put yeah. a fence around it, but right. people see it. And, and it was people coming up and commenting on the works as they were being installed. Yeah. But it was, it was, they were very engaged in it. Yeah. And it, was, it that was, became very exciting for all of us, especially for you. Yeah, and, and, you, and you know, you talked really beautifully um, a bit earlier about something very specific about sculpture in the outdoor public realm. Mm -hmm. um, and you, I'm going to kind of copy you now, but it is, there's an odd democracy to it. Yes that you cannot recreate in a museum, you cannot recreate in a gallery. It's this odd space, it's like a warp. Um, and I find that endlessly fascinating and for the most part, endlessly hope-giving. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. that strange double thing that yeah. people do want to see sculpture, they react to it actually very naturally um, and very easily. Um, but at the same time, um, it's a unique moment, 
It's, you a get... very, it's a very different engagement. And, yeah. you know, whenever you go in there, do you, I mean, the summer exhibition is busy, but the courtyard is very busy. Right. And the, there's constantly people there looking at the sculpture, taking photographs of it. And it's a very different relationship that they have with sculpture outside yeah. to sculpture inside. Right. Because I think there's no pressure to behave in a particular way or to engage with it in a particular way. Yeah, or way. pretend just, you like it yeah, or don't. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And what's, what's kind of fascinating from the out, out, with the outside setting is, is how it benefits from changing light. I mean, these, mm -hmm. these installation photographs were taken super early in the morning, so you get right. that wonderful kind of fresh, bright morning light. Right. But every, every hour of the day, they become something different, and it's mm -hmm. not that constant gallery light. And right. that gives them a particular... I don't know, it, it, it imbues them with a, with a different sort of life that I think people engage with. Well, I, I think, to. you know, I, I make sculpture for, um, for the outdoors, for light. I mean, even unconsciously. And in LA, a lot of the time um, I spend in there, with, I don't have natural lights on. And I, I'm really interested by the shadows the pieces throw, by how they transform in light. Um, and I think that, you know, is, is the issue in sculpture, how it activates space and how it activates light, these very uh, essential, fundamental kind of tenets of life, right? And so I'm always, and, and you know, England has an amazing light, it has a really weird light, because so many different forms of light will happen in a day when we're installing. It would rain, it would be really dramatic, the pieces looked very bleak and kind of terrifying, and then the sun had come out for a minute, and then kind of weird muffled light, and then, you know, in one day you go through like six light cycles. Um, at night they look great. You know, I, we, a couple of times we've yeah, walked by after that, dinner. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we, I just saw the Monk Show at the British Museum, and they have these, um, this great print of uh, the people walking on the street. Yes. And Enrico David had sent me, said, it looks like your thing at the RA. And in a way, at night, it really does. Yeah. It becomes almost painterly or cinematic yeah. or something. And um, that is the beauty of, of sculpture, is mm. that you're right. And, and out there, between the architecture and this quite severe architecture of the RA and the, the bodies on the building, the sculptures on the building, there's a real dance. Um, there is a real that's dance. It's been really I, nice. I mean, one of the things I, I, I just wanted to ask you about these pieces, you know, I think the selection is, is, is wonderful mm -hmm. um, because you've got all of these pieces that uh, to do with the figure apart from the owl, which is very much a signature um, right. emblem for you or motif for you. Um, but they've got... They're, of our they're very much of our time. They speak to us now, but they've, they've got this kind of fragility and kind of is it, it and, and a question about their age. You know, there's classical references mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And I find that so interesting that they could have been made any time to a certain extent. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, and I'm uncomfortable about that. It makes me feel very uncool in a weird way, you know. Like but that you recognize that. But I recognize yeah. it, and I, I recognize it as being something I see in other sculptors, and I'm not comparing myself now, but I'm flagging a thing about it. Sculpture, um, because it's so hard to do, and because there's so few sculptors relatively, I mean, in the history of art, there are you know, thousands of painters, but sculptors are pretty few and far between just because of the difficulty of doing it. Um, and I think sculpture, uh, painting has this like erasure, like painters are kind of jostling you know, this is more the truth. This, you know, they're kind of shoving each yeah. other around. And sculpture doesn't have that so much. It tends to constantly refer people back to the origins of sculpture. Even, you know, any of the great uh, modern moments 
often have a, a real ancient, very clear precedent. Mm -hmm. So Michelangelo, you could say, was the radical, you know, of the 16th century to sort of rethink sculpture, but constantly referencing ancient Greece, constantly referencing Rome, constantly re referencing archaic sculpture, right? And then you see it in Giacometti, you see it in Rodin, you see it in, I mean, Rodin, the thing is literally the figure from the tomb of Julius, of Michelangelo. And once you start seeing that and kind of joining the dots, um, sculpture often goes way, way, way back prehistory. And that's why it's kind of a mysterious art because it goes back to kind of Stonehenge, the Venus of Willendorf. You know, it kind of quickly, uh, when you're making it, uh, you realize that that's quite present every time. That tradition goes way That way tradition, back, yeah. you kind of can't survive without yeah. it. And Michael Heitzer, you know, and even performance art goes way back, mm -hmm. prehistory. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, once I kind of got good with that, then I realized art history was my friend, wasn't my foe. And I came from an intellectual climate that wanted to erase, you know, it's like the tabula rasa thing you know, that we had to build a new language. And I'm all for that if people can, if they're capable to do it, it's great. But I realized um, that it was my aid, that it helped me uh, make sense of the world and move forward with the work. Yeah. And, and, and you, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, this whole debate about sculpture and how difficult you found sculpture in the past and, and, and coming to peace with it in a way. But you've also spoken um, really interestingly about um, the blurring between architecture and sculpture and how mm -hmm. some architecture is, is, is taking the place of sculpture in a way. But, you know, this installation in, in a very formal architectural courtyard where the architecture becomes the, the backdrop for mm -hmm. the, the stage that houses your sculpture. That's a really interesting and clear definition of the two disciplines. It is, and, and the, the Royal Academy is such a painting place. I mean, Joshua Reynolds is yeah, not palette. a sculptor yeah, yeah. Yeah, with his palette. And also that, um, yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't take much to notice that, um, you know, architecture is in a kind of heyday at the moment. It's um, It's the kind of Frank Gehry school, it's the um, Thomas Heatherwick, it's the, it's the idea, because I think sculpture really frightens us. I think it frightens me, and, it, and I think it should frighten us. It's a frightening thing. It's a very uncomfortable medium. It takes space from us. It's pointless. It's useless, you know? It's ugly in a weird way, because it's ugly in a particular way, because you know a person is a person, like it's clear, you know? And when you put a sculpture that takes up the same space, the, the, the wrongness of it is super clear. In a way that a painting, it's like you know it's a window, you know it's an artificial space. Sculpture tries to take actual space. And so within it, you know, you've talked about mm. Philida saying it's kind mm. of a dumb art. Yeah. There's a kind of dumb thing about that, mm. which is like, that's not true. And as a sculptor, you go, no, I know it's not true. Do you know what I mean? And then they're like, well, why do it then? Why try to make it look true? And you're not trying to make it look true. You're in a dance with reality mm -hmm. that's complicated and uncomfortable and has some weird relationship, I think, to death. That's why sculpture is used so often in, in death and in mm -hmm. monuments to death, mm -hmm. because it has this weird, it's both really there but it's, and it represents something, course, but it's not that uh, yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's, it's, that, it's that sense of the presence of it that a yeah. painting doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily able to achieve. And it's also that, that aspect of, you know, how, 
how do you look at a piece of sculpture? A painting demands you to stand in a certain position. Mm -hmm. A piece of video art tells you how long you have to sit and watch right. it all the way through. Right. But with a sculpture, how do you look at it? I mean, right. do you, which right. angle? And right. actually, you have, to, you have to sort of almost by circumnavigating it, you animate it. Yeah. And, and so yeah. you, you, you be, develop, you know, the visitor, the viewer develops a kind of emotional relationship or engagement with it. Right. And, and I think that it's uh, an uncomfortable, asks a lot. Sculpture asks, asks a lot of us. Mm. It asks a lot of a society. Yeah. I mean, the reason why architecture um, is so prevalent in our social space, and I think getting more and more and more, if you look at like, you know, the Hudson Yards, or you look, yes. that's kind of the city developers' fantasy. It's like their wet dream, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a store, there's a performing space, mm -hmm. there's a kind of thing you climb on, mm -hmm. and it all makes sense, and it's kind of seductive. It's mm -hmm. kind of Disney in a weird mm -hmm. way. And sculpture stops that. It reminds you, you that you're in a body, it reminds you of holes and feelings, and that your skin is fragile, and you have bones underneath, and, and um, that you are related to a history and all these things. And, and that's an uncomfortable, people don't want to buy stuff after that experience, you know what I mean? But if you see a Frank Gehry or, or the, the Broad, it's like, whoa, you know, is there yeah. a restaurant in here? You yeah. know, that thing, can I go on the roof and see something? Sculpture doesn't do that, it's kind of a uncomfortable, it's uncanny experience. And I think as we move, as we digitalize and we, uh, space becomes ever more fake. Mm -hmm. um, sculpture poses both, you know, whenever I get my pieces finally somewhere, like we were walking around the show in Paris, and it shocks me, all these people, thank you so much for doing this, da, 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 da. like I've kind of brought wine, you know, I've made water into wine or something, it's like, thank you, this is so blah, 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 and then I realized, oh yeah, because it's really rare, do you know what I mean? It is really rare. It exactly. is really rare, and yeah. it is impossible, yeah. so I always kind of go, yeah, good point. You know, this is really fucking weird experience to be in this room with these things that we've shipped. Do you know what I mean? All the way here and we've put down and da, da, da. And then people have this odd relationship. Which must it's be incredibly not a rewarding thing. for you to hear as an artist. But I wanted to ask you about, you know, going back to the studio and how you, you know, you paint as well. And you, yeah. you paint a lot. And you have two separate spaces, one for your that's predominantly sculpture, and then you've got your painting studio. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the thing that, to me, seems to sort of unite both disciplines is mm -hmm. drawing, because yeah. drawing, and I know that you've got interesting things to say about yourself as a draftsman, which I absolutely don't agree with, right. because um, I think you're a wonderful draftsman, and, right. and, um, and I love your drawings. So, but, you know, drawing underpins your, your sculpture, and mm -hmm. of course, it's got a great presence in the paintings as well, but I wondered, how do you work those two disciplines? Does one solve problems in the other? Do you keep them distinct? Are there ideas must flow across both? You know, I, I, I wanted to be a painter, and, and I loved painting. Um, but before that, I always drew. I mean, I drew as a sort of little kid, all little kids do. But I was obsessed by drawing. Or I was, it was one of the safe spaces I had. Um, and that was very important to me, almost religious. It was like a religious, sacred space to draw and try to make sense of my nervous system and my, and my anxiety and all these things. And that I held very tightly to me. And so once you go into the world and, you know, 
drawing becomes a discipline. We've talked about this, and are you good or bad? Can you draw an apple and all that stuff that you get in comprehensive schools in places like Leeds, which is like, you draw all the time, you're not even fucking good at it. And it's like, that's true. You know, but it took me four years to go, well, what's good, right? Or my cathartic moment with David Hockney. With David, Because exactly. people would always use David against me. David, you know, in the North, David can draw, that's why. And Dave finally comes to my studio in LA, and I go, you know, they always used me to, use you as a stick against. And he said, well, I love your drawings. You know, it was like, God, where's, my, go. where's my art teacher from <laughs> 1984? Um, but that said, so drawing... Um, I kind of protected it. I kind of kept it hidden. And my drawings are more like diagrams. They're more like, I mean, you know, this is I your, do this. This is your wall. Yeah, where you have I do all this. of your ideas. Yeah, and, yeah. exactly. And, um, and so then I felt painting became too much of a, like, I was trying to be good at painting or a painter. And so painting kind of wasn't as natural as drawing. And then I found that in a weird way, performance and sculpture were closer to drawing for me in that I didn't use drawings to make illusions. I still don't. I'll still, I'll never try and draw a glass on a table. You know what I mean? I just don't. I use drawings like, um, like kind of like thought poems mm -hmm. in a weird way or like mm -hmm. um, ideas and, and ways of making sense of what just happened to me or something. But the painting came about again in LA uh, as a way of mourning, actually. I was mourning Michael's death, Michael Stanley's mm -hmm. death that um, shook me, the first death that really laid me flat, yeah. you know, because Michael had brought me back to England to do Oxford, and he was the first British person from Liverpool who kind of went, hey, you need to be in dialogue. And I was kind of like, dude, don't bring me back and, like, not support me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we had that. Yeah. And so when he died, it was... It was selfishly awful for me. It was like, dude, you were my guy who brought me back. But it was also, I, I, I sort of realized I loved him profoundly. And, mm -hmm. um, and he, the first person I felt I was going to live a long time with. Do you know what I mean? That we yes. were going to really do a journey. And I lost that thing. And so I found sculpture was too unbearable to do. It felt wrong to sculpt with that sadness and what it unlocked in me unlocked a lot of feelings mm -hmm. and in a way I kind of died when Michael died one part of me died and one part of me was reborn I sort of cellularly died with him in a weird way and those paintings the black paintings are in Paris um that I first saw in your studio yeah, yeah. precisely were my way of mourning and somehow painting um felt more attuned to mourning. It was more private. It was more intimate. It was more frustrating. It was more um, solitary, like me and Mona would sit there at night and I would work for but hours you, and hours you, and hours. You paint at night. You, paint, you do your sculpture during the day when the light is better. And usually, yeah. And I moved to the painting studio usually kind of, I like that time in LA between like five and eight where I can look at the painting, there's still enough light. Um, but um, painting has grown to be a real, I, I mean, I think when sculpture starts to really get, get you down, you know, which it does, invariably, painting is this wonderful activity that has a different relationship uh, to the world and to yourself and to your body. It's more, it's flowy. Yeah. It's more, you don't need people, you don't need materials. You don't need, it's a different 
um, form of healing that takes place in painting. So the painting has become quite important to me. Mm -hmm. and, and on a very sort of banal level, painting uh, economically is also easier. And, and, I, and that's, you notice that pretty quickly. You're like, fuck these painters, yeah. man. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, Jesus. You know, painters always like, you stop moaning about being a sculptor. No, you know? no and when I started, yeah. it's like, yeah. I get that's, it. Yeah. You yeah. guys, I get it. All the galleries are more relaxed about, you know, it's like there's a big difference. Um, but I love painting and, and, and I still admire paint. I mean, this trip, we've seen a lot of incredible paintings and I think it's, you know, an extraordinary form. I, I just can't really do it. I think there's something, well, there's something really interesting about um, sculptors that paint and painters that sculpt. And I mm. think it's, you know, moving into another discipline and seeing it in a, you know, mm. from a, in a different way is, 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 uh, is one of those kind of really remarkable things. And I, I think that you paint as a painter, not yeah. as a sculptor. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, I love your paintings and I think that that series Thank of you. dark paintings are, are, are really wonderful. But it's, you know, just kind of back to the atmosphere in the studio, that the, the, the studio is quite a remarkable place because mm -hmm. you encourage lots of creative people to come mm -hmm. and um, hang out there, have ideas. I've had some of the best conversations with you and Muna in, in your office mm -hmm. where you've got that board where all of your ideas go and all of those kind of visual aid memoirs are, are pinned up mm -hmm. as well. And I, it, it kind of goes back to that early interest that you've mentioned before in performance mm -hmm. and how that becomes very much part of how you think so mm -hmm. that you're, you're you could easily enter into those fascinating dialogues with actors with with musicians yeah. with, with writers yeah but it also informs how you tackle your materials and, yeah. and it's it's that difference between being interested in craft and being interested in conveying your emotions through the materials yeah, in a I, I, I way. think, it, it, and thank you for saying, oh, that's beautiful. Um, I think I, I um, because I was a very traumatized person, I would end up getting very alone and very solipsistic. And, um, and I would drink to try and balance myself. And so those combinations, like the wheel starts to really, so I, the studio became a very lonely, sad kind of, desperate, weird place for a while there. And I didn't really know how to handle success and I got kind of really thrown by that. Um, and I think when me and Mona got together, um, we didn't want to be apart kind of ever. So it was like, how's this gonna work? The studio's like this lonely fucked up place for me. And I've got this person I love who I don't want to be apart from, but like, oh. and mysteriously, this process began together with the moon room, which every now and again you see yeah. pictures of, where I started to build the moon room um, as a kind of way of reclaiming my studio space, to make a room within a room. It's like Shakespeare, the play within a play, right? I wanted to make this space within a space that could imagine a different way of being an artist and to reclaim this thing that I love people. I'm fascinated by people. And as an artist, sometimes you can get quite lonely Again, because you have no role. I mean, my friends who are actors and they mm -hmm. constantly have an audience, people mm -hmm. telling them how great they are or whatever, or screaming. Or and we're there in these studios, we send the work out, you get nothing usually back. It's like, you know, you make money or you don't, but it's a kind of oddly lonely, mm -hmm. bless you. It's an oddly lonely business. And so we started reclaiming the studio and, and sort of allowing my children in. 
And the kids bring this amazing, like they look at the whole thing differently, right? And then I realized there were all these people in LA who I didn't invite in, who wanted to come in, you know what I mean? Who were waiting for a chance to come in. And I was like, really, you wanna come in like here? You know, that's, and I learned pretty quickly that that space is unique, that the sculpture space, because you need so much space, and because, like you say, I have a studio for painting, I have a studio for, you know, I, I made money and I bought buildings because I dreamed of it mm -hmm. since I was like five, you know? Like, wow, imagine having your own space where you can do whatever the fuck you want all day, every day. And finally I had it, but it was it become a kind of hell. And then once I started opening up, I found that there were all these people that, you know, Helen Molesworth, the, the great writer and museum yeah, director, yeah, yeah. wrote about art as a healing space. She, she wanted to reposition the modernist idea that we were looking for this thing of this perfection or this newness. And she put it back to art is about healing, actually. It's about social healing, political healing, personal healing. So the studio, I realized, for people was healing. So, I mean, I know, you know, this Brad Pitt thing's out there. We kind of couldn't do anything about it once he started hanging out in there, or Flea, or these people that were very famous. But they came and found a space where they could breathe. And them being able to breathe allowed me to breathe. And then it allowed these discussions that are unimaginable. Do you know what and I mean? All of that cross-fertilization. All of that. And then, you know, I learned a lot from people in music because I love music and I listen to music all the time. And I learned a lot um, by opening up like that. I learned a lot from the interactions, watching people talk, watching filmmakers and actors argue, mm -hmm. and, and all of these things I realized. And, and I guess I realized in the studio in LA that that's maybe how it always was. I started to imagine, I think actors, artists, filmmakers, poets, dancers, actually do very well together. And I start to envisage a new art or a new way in which art would operate in the world where we would bring these things back together again. Not in exclusivity, not like you know every sculpture thing has to have a dance performance or something, but the, where it's talked about as culture. You know. it's, it's, no, it's fascinating, and it, it kind of is as if it, you're creating this place for the 21st century that the abstract expressionists had, you know, um, in, in the 1950s in a bar. Yeah. You know, which was they were, they were there drinking with writers, with critics, with dancers. Yeah. Um, and all of all of those different disciplines were sort of feeding in to um, to each other's creativity. Right. But you're you're doing that in a slightly different way within within the studio, which is incredibly yeah. exciting. Well, LA feels like it's possible. I mean, you know, I've lived in a, a number of different cities. I've worked in a number of different cities, and there's I've always seen artists attempt to reach out. But LA's unique in the in the cross fertilization, you know, and and the the sense that when you go visit someone's studio, there's a world in there. Artists live in their studios in a way that you kind of can't yeah. um, in other cities, just the space. Yeah. And, and that Hollywood's right there, and that um, there's such a, a, a sense, LA doesn't quite know what it is yet. It's still finding itself as a city. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's never really found its center because it no, doesn't have one. It doesn't it's, really, have one. it's really strange. Yeah. So just just on the, the the role of artists, and to finish up before we go to questions, 
So the Royal Academy, mm -hmm. um, the summer exhibition, it's, it's quite an extraordinary thing. The Royal Academy is run by artists and Thomas has had a taste of it all. You were invited along to the annual dinner where all of the academicians are and the varnishing day and, right. and, and got that taste of uh, and an understanding of how the summer exhibition is, is, is curated and run by artists. It's a completely kind of right. different exhibition. What's your impression of it? Has it been surprising? I, uh, yeah, I, I came with a very teenage uh, sort of angst, anger, like, about it. I, I realized how immature, I came with this really immature, like, thing um, that, and it was funny, Mona said it best, the, the, the craziness of the RA became clear to me doing this thing. Like, it was almost like, you know, the children running the school in a weird way. And I also grew to love the democ democratic mm. quality of all these people applying and trying to get their work yeah. in. And, you know, you know, from all over the country and this region. And I had lost touch with that. I didn't really understand it. But also the, the sort of mad idea of setting up this idea of the Royal Academy, it's kind of a brilliant ruse in a weird way because it's not, I mean, it's not an official, it's a mad thing. I mean, when you go it to the dinner, yeah. it's like insanity. <laughs> and, you know, they play, or they, they do all, you know, all the rituals. It's, it's playing at it, actually, is what I realized. So there was this sweetness about it that I began to see. Um, and this um, fun absurdity. And, and, um, and so there is something, um, you can't help but kind of, you know, um, there's something wonderful about it, and there's something wonderful about, in a weird way, you, you, I almost felt like um, in that open show that that should happen more and in more places, mm -hmm. you know, that people should feel okay about handing their work in and having it shown yeah. and putting it together. Yeah. So, so there was something very, very human about it in the end, and, and still something very uncomfortable you know, for me personally, because of my history, like, yeah. no, there's nothing am I going to get, yeah. you know, really, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, and I still have a weird thing with England, and England still has a weird thing with me. I mean, I'd be, I'd be glossing it over if I didn't mm -hmm. still notice mm -hmm. that. It's still there. It's not, it's not many English people who ask me to come and talk or do a show, you know what I mean? Considering I'm from this country, it's still kind of like, oh, okay, you know? And that's a, a, a dance, it's still yeah. complex for me. Yeah. But um, it's been so far wonderful. Well, we are very honored to have you show as part of the summer exhibition and absolutely delighted to have you here tonight. Thomas, I just want to thank you for what has been a really entertaining, illuminating, honest um, thank you. conversation. Thank you so much and thank you all for thank coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.